Fear, it follows us as we walk, like a shadow seeking to overtake us. It can be paralyzing, crippling when fear sets in. Fear of failure, fear of loneliness, fear of danger, fear of the unknown. We are aware that fear is close by, but we know our God is even closer. He walks with us. He never leaves us. The most repeated command in the Bible is do not be afraid. God knows that we will face it every day, but he gives us the courage to keep moving. He fills us with the strength and peace to know that he is greater than any fear that would try to hinder us. And when the night is closing in, he is already here with us, telling us, fear not. Trinity Church, I want to welcome you today on this last Sunday of August. It's amazing that we have gone through this month and are on the other side very shortly into this uh, new month of September. We are very glad that you're with us today. Like Hilke said earlier, I want to welcome you watching online, whether it be in your living room, whether it be on your laptop, however you might be joining us, maybe on your phone. Some of you are traveling and you're able to be a part of what's going on today that way. But others of you are out on the pavilion. We talked about kind of beginning this kind of 9 a.m. experience in the shade and we've got extra shade structures out there. So just want to thank you for taking a step with us. I also want you to know that out in the morning, it's the weirdest thing on a Sunday morning to see. We have a work crew that is getting ready to do some things out in that space so that we can get some lighting going on over the lawn. And so this morning I showed up, they've got these machines digging holes and getting posts laid and all these things that we're working on. So it's exciting and exciting to see kind of how that progress is happening and taking shape. So just know the things that we're working on, we are still working on and we're excited to see God create some opportunities along the way for us to be able to expand our ministry both outdoors and then some things coming in the near future online as well. So we're excited for that. Will you join us today as we are heading back into a series called Fear Not. And in this series, what we've been looking at is these commands, like the video said, of where God has said clearly in his word, do not be afraid. And as we dive in today, we're going to see that that command that God has given us is not a stern command. We've talked early on that at times we can say that to our kids, hey, knock it off, stop being afraid. God doesn't come to us that way. Instead, when he says, do not be afraid, he's telling us out that we can have confidence because of who he is and because of whose we are. And so it's out of that reality today that we continue in in this series, and I'm excited to, um, to dive in with a new stage. We're looking today at a, a passage in Scripture that I think is a bit unique. It's a little bit of a different kind of message today, but one that I am so absolutely excited to bring because I guarantee that in this season, you have experienced something like what we're talking about today. And whether today you are going through it or whether your season is about to begin, I want to encourage you to let these words from the prophet Isaiah, as he was being God's mouthpiece, his spokesperson to the people of Israel, let them resonate and be true in you. 
Because what we're looking at today is a unique passage. What we often as followers of Jesus love to hear is that God is going to come and he's going to save the day. That even in the bleakest moment, God is going to come and provide this out for us and, and that we don't have to end up losing what we value so deeply. Today's message is different. Today's message, God says clearly to his people, I'm going to move you from the land. I have been warning you and warning you and warning you for centuries to be a people who are my people, whose heart is after me, and whose desire is to fulfill my mission for you in the world. But this people continued to resist, and finally, centuries over time, these words are going to be declared clearly, not that God may pronounce judgment, but God is. They were going to lose the land. And, and in, within that, what we're going to hear God clearly say is that this consequence is not going to change. And even though, to use a metaphor we'll see all throughout our time today, even though the ship is going down, you need not fear that I would not be with you. You need not fear that I won't be present. You need not fear that I won't be your rescue. Because even though the ship is going down, I will be your shore. So that's what we're diving into today, a very unique kind of passage. We're going to see through the lens of the prophet Isaiah that he was going to begin announcing the beginning of the end. Judah was indeed going to be overthrown. And in that sequence, as the people began to brace for this reality, Isaiah is going to say, as we see in three places in the second half of the book today, do not be afraid. Now, we started this series actually uh, a while ago. We did a series in between called Critical Convictions, and yet we began three weeks. And let me rewind us there to give you kind of a, a thread of where we're going. We began with the, the Hebrew slaves on the run from Egypt, and as they're leaving Egypt, they're going marching towards the Red Sea. It's not something you can just kind of walk through as a puddle, but behind them, the armies of Egypt were in pursuit. And God says in the middle, of it as they look like they have problems on both sides, don't be afraid. And he parts the seas, they walk through, and the army is swept away. Then we saw that once they were a new generation was at the, the edge of the land on the east side of the Jordan, as they're about to go in, God tells their new leader, Joshua, do not be afraid. Go in and take the land I've promised to you. Hilke brought a very powerful message after that about a really morale-swinging defeat that they had in this little city of Ai because there was sin in the camp. And out of that, Yahweh comes back to Joshua again and says, do not be afraid. That failure is not going to define you. Go and take the land. So we saw three messages that were all about passages in Scripture about getting into the land. Now we fast forward generations, and now we're talking about a people who are going to be expelled from the land. That's what's happened. A lot's happened in between, but that's where we pick it up today. So here's our now what statement of what we're looking at, and to see if I can get my computer Man, I'm having more problems with my laptop nowadays. All right, here's our now what statement where we're going today. Though you may lose what you've deeply valued, God hasn't lost his hold on you. Though you may lose what you've deeply valued, God has not lost his hold on you. Let's look at number one in your notes today. By the way, I totally forgot. If you have a Bible, you should open it. 
through the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 41 is where we're going to pick it up. And if you have notes, either that you've downloaded and maybe printed or from our app, if you just digitally open those up today, you can be tracking with us. And this is number one in your notes today. Fear cannot remain when you recognize God's presence with you. Fear cannot remain when you recognize God is present with you. Here's the first verse that we're looking at today in Isaiah 41, verse 10. This is what the prophet says to the people. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. These are powerful words today, and before we look at the specific context of these words in chapter 41, let me give you a little background on the prophet Isaiah and a little bit of what his ministry was like in the southern kingdom of Judah. He prophesied under the reign of four Judean kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, and we'll look at his time with Hezekiah in just a moment. He was probably executed during the reign of a fifth Uh, Judean king, uh, evil king Manasseh. Isaiah prophesied, watch this, from 739 to 681 BC. It's hard to do math kind of reverse, right? The BC side, that's almost 60 years in his office as prophet. And the best way to explain a prophet of God is that he was a mouthpiece for God to the people. Almost 60 years in that capacity. It's a wild thing to think about. And what he did, he had an incredibly difficult job as he spoke to a nation who had turned a deaf ear to Yahweh, their God of covenant. Instead of serving him with humility, they were offering uh, and offering love like they should and being a people of mission to their neighbors. The nation of Judah offered meaningless sacrifices to God at this temple in Jerusalem, and they committed multiple injustices throughout their land. So this was a a people that was not listening well, not following well. The big idea in the entire 66 chapters of the book of Isaiah is actually synonymous with his name. His name means salvation of Yahweh. Salvation of Yahweh. And that's summed up in Isaiah chapter 12, verse 2. Look at this. Surely God is my salvation. Surely Isaiah. (laughs) Saying that using his own name, it's powerful. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord himself is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. So that's kind of the the context of even the book and the context of even understanding Isaiah's role and even the meaning of his name. Now, the first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah are really all about, though they have some significant promises of coming Messiah, there is so much of the promises of coming Messiah found in the book of Isaiah that, that he will send this one who is born of a virgin, that God would send one who would be this wonderful counselor, this everlasting father. These are found in the first 39 chapters of Isaiah. But really what the bulk of the book is and that part of the book is all about pending judgment. It is coming, it is coming, it's going to happen. And it kind of comes at, and I want to show you one of the few narratives in the book of Isaiah, is the very short chapter of chapter 39. 
In it, what we're going to find is we're going to see this real, this decree made super clear to the people that the time is now coming. It's going to happen in your lifetime. Hezekiah, or formerly, right thereafter, is going to come this pending doom and judgment. So one of the few narrative chapters is chapter 39 of Isaiah. Let's see what this says together. At that time, Marduk Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent Hezekiah letters and a gift because he had heard of his illness and recovery. Hezekiah had been ill even to the point of death. God saved him because he turned and repented. But look at this, Hezekiah received the invoice gladly and showed them what was in his storehouses, the silver, the gold, the spices, the fine olive oil, his entire armory and everything found among his treasures. There was nothing in his palace or in all of his kingdom that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and asked, what did those men say and where did they come from? From a distant land, Hezekiah replied, they came to me from Babylon. The prophet asked, what did they see in your palace? They saw everything in my palace, Hezekiah said. There is nothing among my treasures that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord Almighty. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, who will be born to you will be taken away. They will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. The word of the Lord you have spoken is good. Hezekiah replied, for he thought there will be peace and security in my lifetime. I read the last part of that passage and I go, what? You would have a king that hears these incredible words of pronounced judgment. He has failed by bringing these envoys from Babylon into everything that he owns only to whet their appetite to come and destroy Jerusalem so they can have all of those things. And when Isaiah decrees these words of pending judgment, he goes, that sounds great as long as it doesn't happen while I'm alive. I can't think of a more selfish and short-sighted perspective to have than that. And what we see is, is about Hezekiah, he, what's fascinating is his reign would not have been um, uh, identified or described in, with any of those terms. Look at earlier, we see in 2 Kings 18, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. This is kind of the summary statement about his reign. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. That's a big statement. David was one of the kings of Judah, the second king. So this is high praise. He held fast to the Lord and did not stop following him. He kept the commands the Lord had given to Moses. So what we see is we see Hezekiah, that statement was made earlier in his reign, now in this winter season at the very end of his life, this judgment is made and Hezekiah is like, hey, as long as it ends fine for me, I'll be okay. And just what an incredibly thoughtless thing to say as a leader who is always preparing people for next, not just being consumed with the now. So this is the stuff of what we're talking about, that they were going to be expelled and exiled out of the land of, of Judah. This, is, this judgment is made clear in chapter 39. So this is the stuff of what we're talking about today. Get the context for these verses that we'll look at. This is a people who would lose their homes. 
a people who would lose their livelihoods, a people who would lose their national identity, a people who would lose loved ones. Some lose their lives as the city was going to be besieged. And they were going to be taken to a land who did not know them, a land who did not know their God. A land that had been promised to them from all the way back, their ancestor Abraham. This was all going to change. And I want to say this. I think there's a way in which you can relate. I think as you're listening today and as you're processing not only their narrative, you're looking a little bit at your own. And I think there's some things that you've experienced in seasons of your life. Maybe they were years ago, months ago. Maybe they're happening right now, or maybe you're about to enter into your next. A time of great loss when what you have valued deeply has been taken away from you. So let's get, take a moment today to get into the sandals of these inhabitants of the city of Jerusalem. What do you do when your entire life changes? What do you do when you lose what you've so deeply valued? Maybe it's a dating relationship or a marriage. Maybe it's a job that you just thought was gonna be your future. Maybe it was a home that you thought you'd live in for years. Maybe it was that loved one who slipped right through your hands. I think for some of us, we're actually concerned on the point of losing our country. There is so much conflict and so much disunity right now. I had a long conversation with a family member a week ago who was just so absolutely concerned that America's never going to be the same. Maybe you're wondering the same thing. These are things that you have deeply loved that you feel like you are losing. Then I would say as now, then as in now, then way back even to that group of, of people in Jerusalem and today, being fearful may be the most appropriate emotional response in these kinds of given situations. I want you to hear today, we don't see the Bible communicating that fear is never an appropriate response to a given situation. I don't want you to confuse that. But what the Bible speaks to is that we not be overcome by fear that we not be engulfed in it, especially when our incredibly loving Heavenly Father comes to us and says, don't be afraid. Should the people of Israel have been fearful when their entire way of life was about to be changed? Should they have been afraid when everything they've known was going to be plucked up and moved somewhere else, dis disconnected from loved ones, losing their homes, losing, the losing their livelihoods? Yes, fear is an initial understandable response. But what God is going to echo throughout this book of Isaiah, the second half of it today, is that he tells them, even though the ship is going down, you need not be afraid because I am with you. I am present to you. The book of Isaiah has a significant pivot in chapter 40, moving forward. And though chapter 39 presents these incredibly grim words of absolute uh, judgment, consequences are coming and they will not be stopped. Though we see that, we see some of the most powerful words of the book of Isaiah are found in this second half. Words that you have found great comfort in before. Words I mentioned this week in my midweek video. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. This is saying to a people who have heard with clarity they're about to be conquered. It's going to happen. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Look at this next passage. I love this one so much from Isaiah 42.3. A bruised reed he will not break, 
and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Jesus quotes this passage as he is talking to the people and greeting them with care and concern. These are powerful words. The bruised reed he doesn't break off. The smoldering wick he does not snuff out. He continues and gives hope in the midst of hopelessness. And even this verse that we read a few moments ago, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. All words that are said post the judgment of chapter 39. Number two in your notes today, you need not fear when your helper is God. You need not fear when your helper is God. We're going to move forward a couple chapters to, or to chapter 41. Actually, you're already in 41, a couple verses, I mean. Look at verse 13. For I am the Lord your God, who takes hold of you of your right hand and says to you, do not fear, I will help you. I think when I read verses sometimes, if you're anything like me, you can just read right over the truth that is there so profoundly and just have will stop and look. Look with me for a minute. For I am the Lord your God. I am the covenant God of Israel. I am Yahweh, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. I am your God and you are my people. This is who's speaking. Who takes hold of your right hand. I don't grab you by the neck. I don't put you in shackles and make you submit. But I extend my hand and grab your hand. And I hold you. I walk with you. I steady you. And he who says to you, it doesn't shout, doesn't yell. But the God of all creation simply speaks. And look at what he says. Do not fear. I will help you. Do not be engulfed in fear and anxiety, even though judgment has been pronounced. Know that I will help you through it. These are powerful words that are worth dissecting, worth looking at phrase by phrase. And they're words of incredible comfort and confidence, even in the midst of what's already been decreed as their coming reality. The reality is they were going to be carried away to a foreign land. They would not have independence as a people for 2,500 more years until 1948 when Israel was established once again as its own people, as its own nation. See, these words don't sound like help <laughs> to you and me, to a people who would deeply want to be in the land, to be their own autonomous people. God saying, don't be afraid, doesn't sound like help, unless, unless God committing himself to help them had nothing to do with holding back any longer the judgment that was due, but that in the midst of the judgment, in the midst of the consequences for their sin and their people's sin, in the midst of their loss, he would not forsake them. He would help them and preserve them, though everything else was being stripped away. The root of this word uh, help, it means to surround. The root of the Hebrew word translated in our English Bibles as help means to surround. And in this word picture, what we see is not necessarily God saying, I'm going to surround you from the enemies who would come and, and take this land, but saying even in the midst 
of them doing that, I will preserve you. I will hold on to you. I will grab your right hand and hold on tight. A question I have for you today, have you ever experienced that type of comfort from God even while he was removing from your life something or someone that you value deeply? Have you ever kind of, in a way that you couldn't even describe, how on earth am I feeling comfort? Am I feeling God's protection and presence in the midst of something being taken away from me? I have a feeling many of you have. It wasn't necessarily even the result of your sin or a failure like it was for the people of Israel. But it was a season filled with deep loss and even despair. And yet you sensed his amazing strength, his amazing presence surrounding you in the middle of it. That's why we said today this is a different type of message. Often we want to hear the messages when God comes and saves the day, when God comes and out of nowhere provides this incredible sense of victory. Today's a different type of victory that even in the midst of loss, God says, I am present. God says that I am your helper, and I've not left you alone. I've not abandoned you. Like we've read out of what the people of Israel, the people of Jerusalem were about to endure, there was no hope of holding on what they had valued, but that they could know God's power and presence even in the midst of their loss, that he would be their rescue, he would be their shore, even though the ship was going down. I have read to you in this series from this uh, Max Lucado book called Fearless. And remember what I told you a few weeks ago. Some of us might say, Todd, I can't even hear that title. It just blows my mind. I can't think of even living a life that is fearless. Let me throw out to you today my alternative dis- de- uh, definition of the title of the book, that we would fear less that we would fear less than before when we began this series. And, and in this reading today, actually I have it on the screen, I don't even need to look it up. Look what Max Lucado writes about the power of looking upon the accomplishments and the, the helpfulness of God. This is what he writes. His call to courage is not a call to naivete or ignorance. We are to be, the, to be oblivious to the overwhelming challenges that life brings. We are to counterbalance them with long looks at God's accomplishments. There's a quote from Hebrews 2.1. We must pay closer attention to what we have heard. Why? So that we do not drift away from it. Look at this last line. Do whatever it takes to keep your gaze on Jesus. Do whatever it takes to keep your gaze on Jesus, even when he's taking something away. Finally today, number three in your notes. Because God has paid such a high price to redeem you, know that you are deeply valued by him. Because God has paid such an incredibly high price to redeem you, know that you are deeply valued by him. A couple chapters over in chapter 43 of Isaiah. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear. Why? For I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. Do not be afraid. I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. 
It's always of note to me when I read in the various genres of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation how people feel abandoned by God when he takes things from their lives. Watch these examples. The Hebrew slaves, when they faced challenges of going through the desert and things at times were taken from them that we find in the first five books of the Bible, they would question, God, do you even care anymore? Job and David in the books of poetry who are crying out, asking God, why are you hiding in the midst of my despair? Have you forgotten about me? Jeremiah feeling abandoned by God as he walks the desolate streets of Jerusalem after its destruction and the exile. We read that in the prophets. And the disciples who question the care of Jesus when they face storms and other trials in the gospels. It's, it's as though when we go through these times of things being taken from us, our safety, our security, just our, our simple sense of sanity at times, we, we move quickly from this idea of something of loss to then connecting the dot, God, you must not care. And the reality is if we see that all throughout Scripture, why would we not think that we don't struggle with the same thing? We've seen before that Scripture is given to us to be our encouragement, given to us to help us as we face the same kinds of things that people in Scripture have experienced. So take a look in your notes. We move from thoughts of the difficulties or loss that we're experiencing to question if God is really paying attention or if he's forgotten about us. We make that shift in our minds. Not only has something been lost, but we assume, God, you must not care anymore because you wouldn't let that happen. I think about raising my children who are almost anything but. I've got three adult children, uh, a new daughter-in-law as of a couple years ago, and I've got a 13-year-old at home. But I think about them all when they were young. And, and I think of the example, let's say one of them uh, we would rarely put anything in their crib at night, but let's say that we allowed them to have a toy to play with before bedtime. And as we came over to the crib and, and we knew that that toy being in the crib was not going to be a good thing for them to have all throughout the night and would be a challenge even to sleep, we would take that toy out of the crib. And what would each of those children do? They'd cry, they'd scream, and in their, their beet red faces and as tears were falling down their cheeks, I know in their heart of hearts they must have been wondering, not just that we're taking something away from them, but I don't even know if you even love me anymore. If we've been doing that ever since we're children towards our earthly parents, how much more do we struggle with the same thing as the children of God towards our good, good father when he takes something from us, something that at times is not for our good, and that's why he takes it in other times, it's because he's actually teaching us something through the middle of it, and that loss needs to be a part of the process. We can make that same huge jump from God taking away something that we value to wondering if he still loves us at all. He knew that the people of Israel would be wondering about the same thing. So that's why he reminded them that they need not fear. They need not be a people who wondered if God loved them. Why? Because of the incredibly extravagant price he had paid to buy them back. That's that idea of valuing them when he says, I have redeemed you. They would have understood what that word mean because it communicated something of great power, something that gets lost on us in this 21st century 
about the idea of redeeming something. The word translated redeemed in chapter 43, verse 1 of Isaiah, is the same word used all throughout the former covenant to emphasize the cost that was needed to be paid to bring someone and to rescue them, to save someone and to have them be rescued. It's the same word used for this powerful picture of the idea of the kinsman redeemer, the kinsman redeemer that we see especially in the narrative between Ruth and Boaz. And what we see in the narrative of Ruth and Boaz is the gospel of this one who is from your people coming and buying back something you can't afford to pay, coming and paying that price so you could be redeemed. We see that in the narrative of Ruth and Boaz and we see the, the foreshadowing of the gospel. What we celebrated today at the communion table, these elements of bread and cup, they represent, they remind us of what it cost for God to say, I redeem you, I value you, I deeply, deeply love you to the point of putting my son on a cross in your place. That's what the crucifixion, that's what the death of Jesus reminds us of, is how deeply loved we are by the Father. That's why he's able to say at the end of chapter 43, verse 1, it's synonymous with the words, you are mine. As we close today, I want to share with you a very different kind of song, a kind of song that really speaks to the concepts that we've talked about of trusting God and having confidence in him even when he takes things away from us. Most Christian songs that I know and appreciate and love, just like you do, they speak to God bringing victory and somehow being able to uh, keep back, to move to the side, that of defeat. This song is different. This song uses this incredibly powerful metaphor of a, of a sailing ship out at sea. And as the ship is sinking, the ship is mortally wounded, the ship is not coming back. But you, you can still be rescued. It seems as though all is lost, but yet you have been preserved because God, it says in the song, will be your shore. His words have been very powerful to me in lots of ways. I love the imagery that's here. In the midst of deep loss, God is pledging himself to his people that he will be with them in it and that he will be the one who gets them through it. And he says that to you today. He's here, and you're his, and he'll get you through it. When my mom was dying of melanoma cancer, I remember processing, this was when this song came out over five years ago, and I remember hearing it and it just resonating with me, and, and the imagery in my mind was, my mom's ship was going down. Her physical body was going to die. It was imminent. But in the midst of it, what I could take great and profound joy in, what I could take great confidence in, is that God was going to make good every promise he'd ever made to her because she had put her faith in Jesus. She had walked with him most of her life. And every promise he'd ever made was gonna be realized the moment she entered into his presence. He was going to be her shore. Take a listen to this song today from Lincoln Brewster called Sinking Ships. As you sail on the sea, you could never seem to see That all of your dreams could be tossed in the waves And lost in the ocean, sinking in 
that sinking feeling and as your world has stopped its turn in your heart stands still hanging by this melody of life that hasn't lost for a song that can put into words what I struggled uh, to be able to say. And I hope that's been a help to you. Uh, when I was sharing the meaning of the song this week with Bill and Chris, they said, man, one thing we've got to be able to do is remind people of the opportunity to have those burdens lifted through our prayer team. So after this service, there's gonna be those three QR codes at the bottom and the one on prayer, would you click on that today? If your ship is sinking, and people on the prayer team could come and help lift those burdens to the Lord and help you remember that even in the midst of loss, like we even said, this is our now what statement, though you may lose what you've deeply valued, God hasn't lost his hold on you. Father, we love you. And there are so much going on in so many lives at Trinity Church. 
can begin to think about beyond that. And I think about the community at large. But God, even just within this church family, there are so many challenges, there are so many issues that people are facing. And so many of them, God, have profound degrees of loss today. Today in the midst of that storm, today in the midst of even a sinking ship, God, would you remind them that you were their shore, that you were their rescue. And I would say to you today, if you're listening and you have never responded to this amazing invitation in the Bible called the gospel, you have to realize sometimes God does, he takes things away so as to get your attention, so as to let you know that that thing you've been holding so tightly, it pales in comparison to the great news of the gospel, this good thing of a God who is desperately wanting to get your attention to demonstrate how much he loves you and how much you need him. Today, you may be ready to respond by A, admitting, admitting that you're a sinner who needs a savior. B, believing, believing that Jesus is the only savior available and C, choosing. Choosing to say, Jesus, I put my trust, my confidence in you and what you've accomplished for me, not how I can save myself. Please be my sure. Father, this week, whether we are the ones experiencing great loss or you bring us in contact with those who are, would you use us to be a people of encouragement who keep pointing people back to the great news that even though we lose things we value deeply, you have not lost your hold on us. We love you and we pray in the great name of Jesus. Amen.